All right, this morning we're continuing in our Names of God series, and this is the beginning of Advent. Let me turn this on. This is the first week of the four weeks of Advent. We're going to continue through the Names of God series, but for these weeks of the Advent, we're going to look at Names of Christ, um, because the Advent is about our Lord, Adventing, being here, incarnating himself. And I wanted to start with Logos. Because Logos is this like lofty, grand, spectacular thing. When we, when we think about Jesus as the word, it should be in the right way, it should be overwhelming. There's a, there, we can be overwhelmed in a bad way, and we can be overwhelmed in a good way. And a good way to think, maybe think about fear of the Lord is being overwhelmed in the right way. So when we think about God as Lagos, Jesus as the Word, the eternal Word of God, co-creator, it should be overwhelming. And the reason why I wanted to start with this is because I wanted to create sort of a, a juxtaposition with the incarnation because what do we see in the birth story of Christ? We see the Word of God, this magnificent, amazing, creative God that we If we piled all of our collective knowledge about God in a room, in a pile, if we could write it all down and make a pile out of all of the things that we know about God, it would be less than 1% of who God is, right? He is beyond what we can imagine, beyond what we can comprehend, and yet he becomes a, a baby. This magnificent God becomes a child. Personal, a personal child. He cries. And do you ever think about the fact that Jesus probably got cold and may have gotten the flu and stubbed his toe and did all the things that people do? He was fully, man, the word of God becomes a baby. This tiny, innocent baby. And he subjects himself not only to human flesh, but also the word tells us that he submitted to his parents. So he becomes submissive to human parents who were faulty and sinful. And so God becomes this baby and has every human experience that we have, which is why he's our great high priest. Because he's suffered in every way. He's been tempted. In Hebrews it says Christ has been tempted in every way that you've experienced temptation. Therefore we have a great high priest. Because he's gone through everything we've gone through. Word of God, it's amazing. I was thinking about this this week. How the more we learn scientifically about the nature of creation the more we're forced to face some miracles. Because it's a scientific fact that something cannot come from nothing. Right? Non-matter cannot become matter. Just like non-living cannot become living. So whether you're an atheist or you're a Christian or wherever you're at, you're forced to face a miracle. Because everything that is shouldn't be. Scientifically. Right? It, it makes no sense that there's something because something cannot come from nothing and at one point there had to be nothing. So it makes no sense. So whether you believe in God or not, you still believe in a miracle because we're here and there's stuff. 
Now, God, the, the name we started this series with, do you remember which one it was when Justin was here? We did. We started with I am, Yahweh. Now, this is amazing. Wrap your minds around this for a second. So, how many thousand years ago was that? 4,000, 5,000, whatever. God reveals to Moses the name Yahweh, which means he, he is who he is. Or if I would translate it, because it, it's really hard to get to the root of what that means in Hebrew. But, but what he's saying is he who is without beginning. He, he who is eternally in existence, who just is. Or he from which all things came. So God reveals a name thousands of years ago, pre-modern science, pre-modern history, pre-all pre all the stuff that we wrestle with today. God reveals his name to Moses and says, all the stuff that you're going to wrestle with and all the stuff that you see and everything, it came from me. I am Yahweh. I am the starting point. Which is so cool because I don't have a clue how it happened. I, I don't have the slightest idea how something came from God, how he created this and everything. None of us do. And if you think you do, you're fooling yourself. You weren't there, right? We don't know how it happened, but we know this, that there was God in the beginning. And he said, let there be, and there was. That is awesome. That is awesome. So the next time you're having a conversation with someone who's like, I, I can't believe in like a miracle in, in that way, you can, you can say, well, the fact that you believe that you exist is a miracle because something can't come from nothing. It had to come from someone. It came from Yahweh, the self-existent one. Another way that the biblical writers, and specifically John, the apostle, talks about this is the Greek word logos. Everybody say logos. Logos, logos um, means spoken word. And in the, the Greek mythology and stuff, it has some other connotations that I don't have time for this morning. Um, but it means God's spoken word. As we reflect upon God's name this morning, Logos, I want you to receive his name. Invite your soul to wonder at God's greatness. I think I said this before. You ever notice how David's always talking to himself? He's like, yo, David, bless the Lord. He's always talking to himself. So like actually speak to your heart and invite your heart, invite your soul to wonder at God's greatness. May you never lose the wonder that you have in God. If you lose the wonder that you have in God, you need it restored, just like you need joy restored. So invite your soul to wonder at God's vastness and greatness. Reflect on the relationship. This is big. Reflect on the relationship between God's word, his light, and his wisdom. Those three things go together. God's word, God's light, and God's wisdom. And then ask the question, how does Christ's name, Logos, inform your life? How does it name you? Strong's lexicon um, says this about this usage of Logos in John. So the Apostle John uses the word Logos to describe Christ in the Gospel of John. He uses it in um, 1 John, and he uses it in Revelation. So this is a recurring theme for him. It says, in John, Logos is, denotes the essential word of God, Jesus Christ, the personal wisdom and power in union with God, his minister in creation and government of the universe. The cause of all the world's life, both physical and ethical, 
which for, for the procurement of man's salvation put on human nature in the person of Jesus the Messiah, the second person in the Godhead, and shone forth conspicuously from his words and deeds. All right, that's, a, that's kind of fancy language there. What it's saying is that the word has always been, the word has been existent with God from the beginning, just like we're going to see in John. And, and the word of God is God's co-agent in both salvation and creation. See, God not only made the physical world, he made the spiritual world. You're not just physical, you're also spiritual. You have an ethical part of your nature. You're made with, um, with a soul that is able to recognize morality or to push it away. God created both the ethical and the spiritual, the physical. He created all of it. So John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So what should every... What would every Jewish person who knew their scriptures immediately think when they read that? In the beginning. What do they think? What's that? Yahweh? In the beginning, what do you think? Genesis Genesis 1, right? This is a direct quote of Genesis chapter 1. So John is doing this intentionally. In the beginning was the word, or... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is Genesis 1.1. The earth was formed and without void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, you know what the first thing he said? Let there be light. And there was, I had this great idea where I was going to have the lights all off. This morning, and I was just going to start with, in the beginning, God said, let there be light. And then someone dramatically turned the lights on, which would have been awesome. <laughs> As you can tell. And God said, let there be light. And there was Yahweh existing himself in a state that we would understand of nothingness with no matter of time, no energy moving across space or anything like that says Let there be light, and there was. Something bursts into the nothing. God voices it and speaks it. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light. Of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was darkness over the waters. And the Spirit of God hovered over the darkness, and God said, Let there be light. The first thing that God speaks over his creation is this Jesus. Jesus. Look, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. Darkness in all of creation. There's nothingness in darkness. And the first word of creation that God speaks. He didn't create his son. His son is eternal. And yet the first word he speaks over creation is the light of his son. 
Jesus and there was light. And in Christ, his life is the light of men. And I love this translation. I think the New American Standard Bible gets this verse right, which is why I chose this translation for the whole passage. It says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Your scriptures, whatever you're following along with, it might say overcome. It did not overcome it. And it can mean that. The word there can mean it. But it's, it's, got a, it's got a twofold meaning. Jesus, the light, shines in the darkness. And the darkness didn't understand it. It didn't comprehend it. When you, when you overcome something, if you're, if you're a man, here's how I think of overcoming someone. If I'm wrestling with them, you have to grab them in order to overcome them, right? You can't overcome someone without grasping them. And so when you're wrestling and you're trying to overcome your adversary or your brother or whoever it is, you grasp them, right? And you hold them and then you try to tackle them. You try to bring them down. You overcome them by grasping them physically. What do our minds do when they're seeking to understand something? Our minds seek to grasp. They seek to hold on to it in order to overcome it. There are things that I don't understand my wife's a nurse, and she'll talk to me about, like, if someone has a disease, and she'll explain it to me, and I hear the words, but my mind doesn't grasp it, right? I don't understand what she's saying. <laughs> I have not overcome that <laughs> in the same way that she has. The light of God in the beginning, God speaks light. The light of God shines in creation. And the darkness looks at it, and it can neither understand it, nor can it overcome it. When darkness encounters logos, when darkness encounters the word of God, it can neither grasp it in the mind, nor overcome it in the flesh. And there is an incredible picture of this that our minds should go to in the life of Jesus. And it's found in Mark. And I think it's worth turning there, so bear with me for one moment. What happens when the light of the world steps up onto the hill and spreads himself out naked and is beaten and bruised and pierced? Do you remember what happens? Mark 15, and when the sixth hour had come, Jesus, the light of the world, our picture shown with a loincloth on. He didn't have a loincloth on. Jesus, completely empty, spread out. The light of the world says, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Three hours, darkness is pressing in upon the Son of God. Three hours of physical, tangible darkness as Christ is spread out on the cross, pressing to overcome him. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God, our Father, that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. The darkness did not comprehend it. Because you know what happened? The curtain was torn in two. The dead were raised to life. And Christ on the third day, the light of the world, walked out of the tomb with a physical body, once again, resurrected, 
and shone his light upon the world. Such a cool picture. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those were his own, did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. That's us. We didn't walk with him physically. We didn't live 2,000 years ago, but we believed in his name. And having believed in the name of God, the name of his son, Jesus Christ, he has given us the right, the legal standing before God that we are his adopted children. There's some times when I get pretty mad at myself or pretty angry if I mess up in a situation or fall short or, you know, whatever, I'm struggling with temptation or whatever it is. And what I'm trying to learn as a son of God, and I've been practicing this for a while, is when I face that wrestle, when I face that struggle, when I face that doubt, whatever it is, the accusation, I say, I have the right to be a son of God. That is who I am. And there's nothing arrogant about that. It's just the truth. It's because of him. It's really actually cool to say. I would encourage you to do it. Next time you're struggling or wrestling or you have negativity speaking to you, just say, I'm, I have the right, having believed in Jesus' name, I'm a child of God. That's who I am. I had a professor who, I may, I may have said this to you the other day, I don't know. I have a professor who, who um, would say, he was a New Testament professor, and he would say, I walk down the street and I say to myself, the Son of God lives in me. You should walk down the street and say that same thing. You should walk to your work. You should go to school. You should do whatever it is that God's called you to do. And you should take each step knowing this. I'm the son of God and the son of God is living within me. So John the Baptist comes. And John's very clear. John the Baptist is not the witness. Or he's, he's, he is the witness. He's not the light. And he points to Jesus and he says, there's the light. I'm not the light. There's the light. But then John the Apostle says this. And I, I, I put a highlight on it. Jesus was the true light. Verse 9. Coming into the world. And he enlightens every man. So the light of Christ shines upon us. Shines upon us from the cross. He's Jehovah Nissi. The Lord is our sign. He's our banner lifted up. And he waves over us. And he shines upon us. And, and it's like coming at us. But Christ lives within us, and so there's an enlightenment to the light of God that is to take place in his children, which wells up from within us, so that it's not just shining on us, it's shining out of us. John points at Jesus and says, there's the light, that's the light, that's the one, he's the one who's shining. And as many as receive him, he gives the right to become children of God. We're born not of flesh and blood in his family, but of the Spirit but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as 
as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. That phrase, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is really cool. The dwelt, it, what it means is he pitched a tent. He tabernacled. That's what, that's what the Greek word means. It literally, if you translate it literally, it would say that. So the word became flesh and pitched a tent among us. Tabernacle among us. So what houses the presence of God in the Old Covenant, in, in the Old Testament? Where, where is that presence of God housed? Tabernacle. Tabernacle, right? So, so the tabernacle is the picture of the presence of God. The light has come into the world. John witnesses the light and says, that's the light. The light dwelt among us. He became a baby. God, Yahweh, the self-existent eternal one, becomes flesh and blood, becomes a baby, and lives among us. And he sets up camp here. He tabernacles. And all who visit him are enlightened. All who visit him are filled with the presence of God and have the right to be called children of God. There's, there's an attack that's happening in our culture right now, a spiritual attack. And it's not a new one, it's an old one. And it boils down to this. It's the, the enemy wants to depersonalize God. It's the depersonalization of God in our lives. So the, the heresy, the old church heresy would be called Gnosticism. Everybody say Gnosticism. All right, that's a heresy. It's, it's different than agnostic. Agnostic means you kind of believe in anything. It's a little bit, you know, universalist. That's not the same thing. Gnosticism is from Plato. It originates in Platonic thought, and it's this. It, it teaches that matter is evil and spirit is good. So it creates a dichotomy between flesh and spirit. And so Plato, what he taught... His disciples, including Aristotle, and it's trickled down in all of history and much of Western civilization has believed this, is that the goal of the spiritual life is to escape the physical life and be purely spiritual. And we see this in Eastern religion. This is very Hindu. This is very Buddhist. There's a, there's a lot of it, but it's also crept into Christianity. The whole book of 1 John is a letter against Gnosticism. That's, that's what John is railing against. He's railing against the heresy of Gnosticism, the dichotomy. You can see this in yin and yang. You can see this in the Pepsi symbol, right? It's, it's matter is bad, spirit is good. Now, it's easy to look around, especially when we're struggling with health issues or we're walking through a slum or whatever it is and say, yeah, that's bad and we want to escape that. The problem is, back in the beginning, when God hovered over the nothingness and he spoke light into the world, and then he spoke matter into the world, creation into the world. What did he say about it? It's good. God said it's good. God created it and said, it's good. And then when he created man, what did he say? It's very good. Very good. What did God form man out of? Dirt. Dirt. God got down in the dirt and played in the dirt and made a man. That's a really cool picture. God got dirty and made a man. 
And he said, it's very good. It's very, very good. Jesus became a man. He had flesh and blood and hair just like you. He walked. That's why I like to emphasize things like he stubbed his toe. It's true. He had a body. He knew what it's like in every way to be like us. And when he was raised from the dead, and how do we know this from the scriptures? I want you to ask yourself and use your Bible knowledge because I know you've got it. When he was raised from the dead, how do we know that it wasn't just it wasn't just a spiritual resurrection from the dead? How do we know it was a physical resurrection? He appeared, people touched him. You know what else he did? Which I this this one for me is really cool. He sat down and ate. He was like, I'm hungry. The resurrected Christ was hungry. This is why we can just outright reject this lie. That that matter is, is evil and spirit is good. They're both good. God didn't come to rescue you from your bodies. He came to rescue you and your bodies. Which is why when you are resurrected in Christ, you will not only have a spiritual resurrection, you will also have a bodily resurrection. And Paul talks about this a lot particularly in 1 Corinthians 15. If you've been crucified with Christ, you'll be raised to life with Christ. And you will have a physical body. And I'm busting myths this morning, so I'll keep going. We will not spend eternity in heaven. We will spend eternity on the new earth, and heaven will be there. We're not going to be little angels. You're not an angel. You won't become an angel when you die. That's also a heresy. So when someone says, I heard someone say this before, I thought it was so funny. So when someone says to you, you're an angel, you can say, no, I'm not. And that's a heresy. <laughs> Don't say that, that's me. <laughs> but, but it is to say this, God doesn't want you to be less you, he wants you to be more you in Christ. One of the things that happens with Gnosticism is this. So in Buddhist thought, you become one with the cosmic God, Right? The goal is to lose your flesh and become one in spirit with karma, with with the all-existent one. In Christ, we retain our personhood while becoming more in him. You never disappear into him. You become more yourself even while he becomes more like himself in you. Do you see what I'm saying? God doesn't want you to not exist. He's not asking you to be a wisp of air into his spirit. He wants you to be you. He came to save you. You, the person. And in eternity, you will be you. Julie will be Julie. Don will be Don. Mike will be Mike. That's awesome. I will be me. I'll be more DJ than I've ever been. DJ. Because Christ is dwelling within me. So when Paul uses the phrase, in Christ, we are in Christ, and he uses this over and over again, he's not saying you disappear in some Buddhist way into Christ. He's saying that Christ continues to dwell in you, making you look more and more like him, but also making, him, making you look more and more like you in your own unique way. You're a snowflake. There's no one like you. You're a, you're a one-of-a-kind, custom-made God worshiper. There will never be anyone that's exactly like you or made to worship God in quite exactly the same way, though he does universal things, and I mean universal in the sense that his salvation is the same for us. 
The cross is the same for us. We both encounter that. We both have to go through that and walk, and walk through that. So it's a big rabbit trail, but it's a big deal. It's a big deal because the lie that's coming, particularly against my generation right now, is that God is not a personal God. He's a cosmic God, which is the Gnostic Eastern thought. No, he's not. He's a personal God. God is a personal God. And God is personally involved in your life. And he wants to speak to you. He wants to talk to you. He talks to all of us, but he wants to talk to you. The word of God, amazing, becomes flesh and dwells among us. He pitches a tent right here. And you have the chance to encounter him today. And I have the chance to encounter him today. John testified, verse 15, about Jesus and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. Remember what that means? From last week? God not only loves you, he likes you. That's what grace upon grace means. For of of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. That's That's a cool phrase. Jesus, God's only begotten Son, is in the bosom of the Father. And the Father has explained Jesus. The Father has spoken Jesus. There's another um, lesser known creation account in the Old Testament, and it comes in Proverbs chapter 8. And there's this interesting thing that happens in Proverbs 7 and Proverbs 8. There's two women, two two sort of um, grand scale women. One is Lady Foolishness, and she cries out from a high place, and she's a seductress that tries to lead young people astray and into death. And there's a, a vivid graphic ways that it's explained, but young men are led by the nose like a calf to the slaughter by, by the foolishness that she spreads. And then at the beginning, and we don't have time for all of Proverbs 8, but at the beginning of Proverbs 8, it says, does not lady wisdom also call? Does not wisdom also cry out? And then it goes into this creation account retelling the Genesis story. We pick up in verse 22, it says, The Lord, this is Lady Wisdom speaking, she says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old, from everlasting. I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there was no depths, I was brought forth. When there was no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust, of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. He inscribed a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundaries so that the water could not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, I was beside him as a master workman, and I was daily his delight. Rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. Wisdom 
was with God as his co-creator from the beginning. Daily dancing as a workman before the Lord and creating. Now, Jesus said someone greater than Solomon has arrived. What do we know about Solomon? He's the wisest man who ever lived. Someone greater than Solomon is here. And then Paul says, in Christ, all of wisdom and all of creation dwells within Christ. Christ is wisdom. Christ is wisdom itself. There is no wisdom outside of Christ. There's only foolishness outside of Christ. Christ, the word of God, the Logos, was God's co-creator. We see his work from the beginning. Now notice this. I was beside him as a master workman, and I was his delight. So God is delighting in his son daily, rejoicing always before him, and then rejoicing in the world, his earth. God made it and said, it is good. When God created the earth, he rejoiced over it and said, it's good. And having my delight in the sons of men. Wisdom, Logos, the eternal word of God, delights in his image bearers. He delights in his creation. Daily he looks out and takes delight in what he's made. Now we live pretty far into this story and there are some things that are really messed up. And it is difficult for us to delight in men when we look at the chaos and the pain around us. And we have to take this stand, people of God, we have to take this stand. As sons of God, we have to take this stand that we agree with God that the image bearers of God are delightful to him. They're delightful to him. There is no person that is alive today that is outside of God's desire to know him. He delights in people. So you could be working with the hardest person in the world or worshiping next to the most difficult person to get along with, whatever it is. God delights in that person and you don't really have the choice. In him, you must take the same stance. I choose the same way to view that person as God views them. They're worth God's love. They're worth God's salvation. But it starts here, because we can't love our neighbor until we've loved ourselves. You cannot do that to the lost person until you've done that to the lost self. And said, for whatever reason, I don't see why, but God looks at me and he delights in me. And he says, I'm worth it. And I have to receive that in order to be a funnel for that to flow. Another creation account is in Psalm 33. We started the service with this. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. It fits. It fits for the people of God to praise Him. When you're praising God and you're losing yourself in worship, it should feel like a coat that you, like a well-worn coat or like shoes that are broken in. It's fitting for the people of God to worship, to praise Him. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to Him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let the earth wonder at God. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it was done. 
He commanded and it stood fast. Logos. God spoke and it happened. He's still speaking today. So in this series, I'm going to try, I, I dropped a ton of stuff this morning. Like lots of different thoughts. And thank you for hanging with me. I'm going to try to bring it all back together here. I asked you to think about light, God's word, and wisdom. We have the Proverbs 8 where wisdom is God's co-creator. We have God speaking the first thing, let there be light. And we have the word of God eternally existent. In this series, what I've been doing is I've been listing a name of God from scriptures. And I've been then saying, based on this name of God, this is what I believe God is speaking to Parker for. This is our name. So we did shepherd, where is she? That's an obvious one. We did healer. This one was a little bit more of a jump. Not a jump biblically, but you got to work for it. Because God has healed us, he's made us clean, which means we're his temple. God's our healer, we're his temple. Last week, God, Jehovah Nisi, he's our banner, he's our sign, which means we're victorious. We are victorious in him. All right, here's the name for this morning. It comes from Matthew 5. Jesus in John 8 stands up before the Pharisees and says, I'm the light of the world. In Matthew 5, on the Sermon on the Mount, he says to the people listening to him, who are being enlightened by him, see verse 9, the light shines and he enlightens every man. He says, you are the light of the world. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount looks out to the people and he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Because God is logos, wisdom eternal, because Christ, the eternal wisdom of God, has chosen to come pitch a tent among us, shine his light upon us, but also shine his light from out within us. He enlightens us. Part for church, brothers and sisters in Christ, sons and daughters of the living God, you are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill. Wherever you go, you are the salt of the earth. So let your light shine as a people who have been enlightened by wisdom itself. You might not think of yourself as a wise person. But the whole book of Proverbs is about this. If you worship God, you're wise. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you worship God, you are wise. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's what the fool says. The fool does not worship. Those who are wise worship Jesus Christ. If you worship Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are the light of the world. City on a hill. He is your shepherd. And you are his sheep and his flock. He is your healer. And you are his temple. He is your banner. And you are victorious in him. And he is the eternal Logos. Word of God. And you are the light of the world. Pray with me. Let's receive this. Father, this morning I felt a little bit like a farmer who was just scattering seed. 
as I was preparing for the sermon this morning, um, throughout the week for this morning, I couldn't nail down exactly like the one thing. Usually there's like one thing on my heart and I, I couldn't, like there was so much. And I just sensed you saying, talk about this, talk about this, talk about this, talk about this. And, and so what I'm asking, Lord, is those things we've talked about that have been a little bit here and a little bit there, I, I've desired for it to be about you in every situation. And so, God, I pray that the seed that's kind of been scattered out among your body, I pray that each person would have received what they needed today. Perhaps those who didn't, who are wrestling with, are you speaking to them personally, I pray that they would receive that today. Maybe those who are wrestling with, you know, creation and what to believe about the nature of creation or evolution or whatever, I I pray that they would rest in Yahweh, the one from which everything came. I pray for those who need light shined upon their hearts this morning, that your light would shine a light. I pray for those who have yet to encounter you, God, that they would know this, that the word became flesh, a person, and, and that he is tabernacling here, and we can enter into that tabernacle, into the presence of God. I pray for those who perhaps um, have never known you in a personal way, that they might know you in that intimate, personal way. Just that your seed, God, the seed of your word would be scattered and that you would protect it and that it would grow. And I pray, God, that we would be your light. We recognize just with John the Baptist, we agree with him. We're not the light of the world. We, we haven't existed from the beginning. There's nothing that I have in and of myself that anyone else needs. And yet, the light has come And it enlightens us in such a way that Jesus says to his disciples and followers, and he says to us, you are now the light of the world. Because he was first the light of the world. Because he first loved us, we love. Because he was first the light of the world, we also are now the light of the world. So I pray that we, as the people of God, would live confidently in this today. And I pray that we would also delight in your creation and know the goodness of your creation. God, we receive this word from you. I bless Park Four Church. God, bless your people in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.